welcome to Conversations About Life. Cynthia, for being a guest on my podcast. You're very welcome. So you're um, currently staying at the Airbnb house, and you're a traveling pediatrician, and sometimes you live on a, a boat in the ocean. And um, anyway, so, you know, we've talked, you know, had coffee and got to talk to talk quite a bit, you know, already. So that's pretty neat. So I was just looking forward to going further and talking more with you this morning. So anyway, thank you. You're very welcome. Um, is there anything as far as just, a, you know, an introduction, just, you know, as means of a way just to kind of splash in, is there anything else you would say about yourself as far as just describing, you know, who you are as a person? Um, well, you would say I'm a single professional female. I've never been married. Um, by choice, and I seem to live a life of high adventure, uh, which I believe I got the adventure gene from my father, and um, and because I have the monetary means, um, I get to do all kinds of fun things. It's a little bit like being a delayed teenager my whole life. I mm -hmm. just get to have a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, I love to work. I love I love being a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. um, I consider my life as a life of service. Um, I like to play hard and work hard. Mm -hmm. I do both. And I love what I do for a living, and I love what I do when I go to play. Um, and the boat thing is really my significant other. I've been in a relationship with Skip for eight years. He's also an adventurer. And his dream was to live on a sailboat. And so we've had two sailboats now. Um, the first one was in um, the U.S. Virgin Islands. We lost that in the hurricanes in 2017. And this is our second boat, which is much bigger. It's 41 foot. And his dream was to sail the eastern seaboard. In the type of work that I do, um, which is locum tenens, so I, I have contract positions and I'm self-employed, um, allows me to go and meet up with him on the boat as much or as little as I would like to. And he's been sailing up and down the East Coast now for four years. His dream was to do it for a year, but I think he fell in love with it. And I have a feeling this is going to be a, a lifelong thing. The rest of his life, he's probably going to be sailing on the boat. And so I just kind of catch up with him. How did you meet Skip? Uh, we met... It was... <laughs> I had given up on being on relationships, and I prayed. I prayed, and I said, okay, I'm going to go online for 72 hours. I was living on Cape Cod at the time, and I had a dating website I was on, and I went on. I only went on it for 72 hours. I found three men who I was slightly interested in. And so one of them I eliminated by phone, and then I had two dates in one day. I had a date in the morning, and both of my dogs came with me and went for a hike. And that one was, you know, he was a nice man, but not quite right. And then my next date was in the afternoon with Skip, and we were going sailing out of Chatham, Massachusetts. And I have a very small dog named Lucy, who I still have. And she was in his lap within five minutes, which is very rare. Um, she's a very, uh, I don't know, cautious dog. And uh, we went out sailing on a very windy day in the fall, and it was cold. And we just had a blast. And I knew, I mean, I knew that was it. It took Skip longer you know, because he hadn't been dating very long. He had been married for almost 30 years. Hmm. And so I had him continue to date other women. And at a certain point, I said, well, you know, I know you're kind of the one for me, but if you need to keep dating, that's okay. But I have to kind of pull back so I don't completely fall in love with you. And he said, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> that's okay. And we've been a couple now for eight years. Huh. And it's been really fun. So you mentioned high adventure and fun. Um, so, yeah, being out on the ocean sounds like high adventure. Do you have? Does anything else come to mind when you're, 
talking when you, as far as what you mean by high adventure? So, I mean, my entire life has been about adventure. So I do a lot of traveling and trekking. So I've been to Peru and yeah. been to Machu Picchu and hiked the Inca Trail. Um, I've, I've, I used to be into um, snow sports and do a lot of backcountry skiing and snowboarding. Okay, wow. My knees have kind of had it by now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I grew up water skiing. Um, sports were always uh, a part of my life. And now, you know, most mostly I fish, so I do a lot of fishing. Um, and I think the work that I do has been pretty adventurous because I travel over the country. Mm-hmm. My education has been adventurous because I went from... I grew up in Michigan, so I went to University of Michigan, and then I decided to go to University of California, Los Angeles, to do an MD and PhD, and then I went to University of Hawaii, and I trained in Hawaii as a a pediatric resident, which was very adventurous, and then I, my first years as a physician, I traveled and worked, and I, I went, uh, I traveled between um, Hawaii and Alaska. So I did a lot of travel between the two, and Alaska is really amazing. Um, and so my work has been a means of adventure because I just go to all kinds of interesting places and I just work. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about just you know different places you've lived or visited, and just so you've seen a lot. Um, do you, and I just in general, do you have what are your thoughts about? Um, you know, different places and people that you've met, just ways people live and so forth. Like anything strike you as interesting um, from what you've learned about just the way things are in different places? I think I think most of us who live on, this is where we are right now in Missouri. This is called the mainland or the lower 48, depending on where you are. So if you're in Hawaii, this is the mainland. Okay. If you're in Alaska, this is the lower 48. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of differences within the lower 48 between various states and whether you're in a city or you're rural. But when you go to Alaska... That really is amazing, and it's quite the frontier. And when I was in Alaska, I was in a town called Bethel, which is it's western Alaska. It's northwest of Anchorage. It's on the Kuskokwim River, and it's the, the a native population that lives there. And it's hard to believe that in the United States that there is that type of living. Huh. But it's you know very much subsistence living. There's a lot of little villages along the river. Um, they have food shipped into them, and they have little stores. Um, the food is shipped in by, there's like a hovercraft. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, very remote. Huh. And they do a lot of work, you know, catching fish and gathering berries and all sorts of things like that during the year to, to live on. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's more of a subsistence way of living. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's rough. You know, you're much closer to life and death there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, you don't, think about stuff like that when you live in the lower 48. Right. You have a much closer relationship to life and death situations there. And they're living like half the year in the dark, basically. Is that kind of what it's like? (laughs) Depends on where you are in Alaska, which is a very big state, which a lot of people don't quite understand. So Mm -hmm. if you're in southern Alaska... I did some work in Soldatna on the Kenai Peninsula. There... Yeah, it's not completely dark. I mean, it's more like you do see the sun, but it's more on the horizon, kind of like it's more like sunsetty. Uh-huh. But you do see the sun. Okay. Um, and then the further north you go is when as it as it gets dark. Yeah. I found it extremely challenging for me 
Um, the light dark cycle was very challenging. Having too much sun, it was difficult for me to sleep, even with blackout curtains, and then have it be dark all the time, or sunsetty. Most you know when you did have light was very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a passion for life there that, like during the summer, I mean, they're just out. I mean, they're out playing till three in the morning because you can, hmm. you know, because the sun is out, and, yeah. and there's just a real passion for life there that. That was very infectious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was huh. always being in nature, nature always yeah. being in relationship with nature there. Yeah. And so in the rural areas that you're referring to, um, but they still, you were a pediatrician there, so there's like modern hospitals and that type of thing, and people come to the hospital for their births and child care and so forth. I don't know how modern you would call it. Um, So in Bethel, Alaska, yes, we had a hospital. Mm -hmm. We had clinics in the hospital. We called it the Yellow Submarine. It was this bright yellow Hmm. building. It used to be, I think, a weather station that had been converted into a hospital. Um, It's a practice of medicine in that part of Alaska is very different than here. It's a very much a family practice run model. The pediatricians were considered specialists there. Hmm. Um, so the family practice doctors would see all the kids, and the pediatricians would see the kids who had special diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you didn't have the same resources that you have in the lower 48. Mm-hmm. Even in Anchorage, we really, really didn't have... Um, at that time, which was a number of years ago, we didn't have the pediatric specialist you have here. So we did have a pediatric cardiologist in the state. Um, we had somebody who could do surgery. Um, but you did more with a lot less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And But it sounds like um, you're talking about just zest for life and so mm-hmm. forth. So, um, so they were, they probably, if you're a subsistence type of, I mean, you that probably takes a lot of time, so you probably have to work a lot. But then there's also just um, kind of that energy of just enjoying life and celebrating and things like that too, huh? And family, family was very, very important. Yeah. I mean, in the villages, you know, everybody was related in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And they were a very tight community. So what would be like the religious culture in that place? When I was in Bethel, I think there were churches. I just didn't. I didn't go to church. Um, I think they were basically basically Christian. Okay. Um, there was some Greek Orthodox. There was quite a bit of Greek Orthodox there also. Okay. Huh. I wonder if that comes from like Russian influence it was or from something. Russian influences. Okay. There was a number of Russians in Bethel. Oh, okay. Hmm. They seemed to run all the taxis. Okay. So there was, you know, it was very cold and. It was not a big town, and you had the taxis. You'd keep your taxi running like on twenty four hours a day, hmm. and because it was too cold to turn it off, and mm-hmm. so you would just pay a few dollars to go. F- they had different quadrants of town. There was A, B, C, and D, and then it was a certain cost to go from you know one place to another, one quadrant to another, and you just used them to get to and from work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was mostly Russian taxi drivers. So um, when I've been away and then I come back home, it's almost like looking at um, home in new eyes a little bit, you know, because I've been away, you know, I've lived on the West Coast for a while and things like that. So what are your thoughts about like the Midwest after kind of living in these different places? Anything particularly striking when you, you know, you come back into this part of the world? I think what's striking for me because I'm from my family's from the western Michigan area mm-hmm. and um, in western Michigan it seems to be overcast starting in October and the sun comes out in March sometime and I forgot about that you know I didn't live there for so many years and I went back to take care of my mom and realized it's really not very sunny here <laughs> 
here in Missouri, it's very sunny. It's wonderful here. But up north, I couldn't figure out why people live there. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I went back there to take care of my mom, and i was been there for a number of years again, and I asked everybody, why do you live here? And Because I couldn't figure it out, because the rest of the country is like so much sunnier, and there's so many beautiful places to live in this country. Like, Why do people live where they live? Yeah. So I started asking everybody, why do you live here? Why do you live here? Everywhere I go, I ask people, why do you live here? And universally, it's because my family's here. Yep. Universally, it's my family, my relatives. You know, when their families emigrated to the United States, that's kind of where they landed, and that's where mm-hmm. they stay. And you know, we don't have a population that's as mobile as I am. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't mind where, wherever I go. I don't mind living there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, everybody says it's family. Family is why people live there. Yeah, I've been thinking about that recently um, because um, I'm not a big fan of the cold. You know, I have my my body, especially. You know, I yeah. just mentioned my nose and stuff. Um, but you know, if, if I could just be mobile, I'd probably move. I'd consider moving south. But um, yeah, I got like, well, I have parents, and um, and then I have kids and grandkids. So yeah, your family. You know, you're just kind of somewhere. It's you know. So I wouldn't hate to word, use the words, you know, you're just stuck somewhere, <laughs> but, uh, but you are, but you know, there's a lot, I do like, there's pros and cons everywhere you go. And Missouri is a pretty area after living on the South coast, I mean, um, West coast. Um, I came back to Missouri and just thought, what is this? Oh, you know, I came back on an overcast day and you do have overcast times in mm-hmm. Missouri and. I thought it was so depressing after being away for um, a few years, you know. It de- yeah, but. it depends. On the West Coast, I mean, there's so many different... It's so huge, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how many... You have like 13 states on the East Coast in the same space where there's like one state on the West Coast. But yeah, the West Coast is pretty awesome. But I don't like the water there. It's cold. It's cold. Yeah. Whereas on the East Coast, you have this shallow shelf, you know, mm. going pretty far out into the ocean so that the, the ocean temperatures are warmer, closer mm-hmm. to the shore, and the fish come in, and you can do good fishing there. Um, so, yeah, I, I prefer the East Coast. Yeah. Hmm. I haven't spent much time on the East Coast. I've been, we lived in Florida for over the winter one time. Um, but, yeah, so I haven't experienced much of that. Um, okay, so you grew up in a Dutch Reformed Christian type of environment, and then you said that um, you've explored and looked into other religions and things throughout your years. Um, I think you mentioned Jainism and Buddhism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So one question I was going to ask is... Um, like, how do, I'm just slightly familiar with other religions, but um, how do other religions um, deal with guilt? Like, I think of Christianity as um, having, um, you know, put, you know, putting forth, you know, wanting to show guilt for one thing, like, you know, the Bible starts off early with the Adam and Eve story. See, right there at the beginning of humanity's history, you have like a fall and a separation from God. And then that continues on to kind of um, show that, you know, there's a problem, a guilt problem, and then the remedy is Jesus and his death. So do other religions deal with guilt? Um or is it is it ignored, or is it just um, you kind of get over it and rise above it? Or I was just gonna, you know, that was just something I was thinking about, and just wanted to know if you had any thoughts about it. I'm not sure I'm as an in-depth a philosopher. Um, however, I mean, you know, the concept of guilt just makes me smile because. There's also the concept of forgiveness, and that 
you know, in all the religions, whatever, whatever higher power there is, there's forgiveness. There's a yeah. I don't know what else to say that that you know Christianity because I grew up in Christianity. Guilt is pretty big, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It's kind of a Christian, more of a Christian thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of a Christian thing. Yeah. Um, so you said that your upbringing, like uh, Dutch Reformed, is pretty kind of a narrow type of, like us them type of mentality from the way you described it, right? It was a very... Uh, I didn't know that I was. I didn't know that I grew up in an ethnic community at the time. I didn't know. I was a. I am Dutch. I'm a hundred percent Dutch. Um, I'm what you would consider somewhere between second and third generation because part of me is second generation and part of me is third generation. Um, I was raised in the Dutch Christian Reformed religion in a Dutch Christian Reformed school system. And as a child, you don't know any differently. Um, I remember living in a community, it was in a, a community much like this with houses that were close together. And, you know, you know all the kids in the neighborhood and they were all going to like either a public school or a Catholic school. Um, it was like a big deal for me. One of my best friends was Catholic, and it was like a big deal for me to have a Catholic friend, hmm. um, which I didn't understand. It was a big deal for the parents or adults, but the kids, we don't really know the difference. Um, I don't think it was until I left. I don't even know the reasons why. I don't know if it was financial or not, because I think it was pricey to go to uh, uh, the private school. But I went to public school in the middle of sixth grade. I switched over to public school, and it was massive culture shock for me. Huh. Like I had no idea mm-hmm. that the world was the way it was because mm-hmm. I was so sheltered for so long. Yeah. And then when I went to, to college... I didn't even know that a lot of my words, my language was Dutch. Okay, wow. You know, so I would use words in college, you know, with my roommates and stuff, and they would be like, what? And then I'd realize, oh my gosh, that word isn't even English. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it was in college where I started realizing, oh my gosh, I have really been in an ethnic community. Mm -hmm. Um, And... The community that I was in had a lot of rules, mm-hmm. and I think I don't know why. You know, you're as a child, you don't know why you're not allowed to dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, once I left that community, yes, I took a lot of dance classes. <laughs> yeah. I love dancing. Children love to dance. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why we were repressed so much that we weren't allowed to dance. Yeah, uh, we didn't. Yeah. Even cards, you know, because you could be playing cards, but it might be gambling, and gambling wasn't allowed. Yeah. Um, Sounds a little bit like kind of um, fundamentalist uh, uh, communities where it could be a little bit reactionary, like seeing something and then reacting against it in a legalistic way. Yes. And um, something like that. But I've just recently met a fellow from the Netherlands and back home, he was like Dutch Reformed, you know. And um, he lives, he's staying at an Airbnb right here in the subdivision, too, just on the okay. other street. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. So I mentioned you to him and how, you know, you've been involved in the same thing only here in the United States. Yeah. Um, his name is Bas. So I don't know if that's a common name among, you know. My my last name is Dutch. It's D, which is the. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And then Meester, which is teacher. It's the teacher. So I had some distant relative who was a, when they took a surname, they were a teacher. Okay. The other side of my family, I have one, uh, my mother's side of the family was Brinks. And Brinks is beekeeper. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I come from a long line of teachers, apparently. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, what are your thoughts about um, families, like the current state of things as far as families, if things are different now than they used to be, or maybe not, just because you probably interact with families a lot. You um, work with kids, so that's not just kids independent as people, but it's with them and their families. So do you have any, um, I don't know, anything comes to mind as far as just your how your understanding has grown as far as just the the way you know families are and you know typically or maybe they vary so much that it's hard to say that you know um, families tend to be you know like this or that but any thoughts along those lines I work with children and so I work with all those children's families yeah I mean, what you've seen happen over, what, three generations? Probably over the last three generations. You've seen the families get very, very fragmented and more nuclear. Whereas families used to be hmm. together and grow up together and live together and stay together and be in the same community together. And everybody participates in the raising of the children mm-hmm. and in the well-being of the family. And families have split. You know, kids move off, you know, move away from their parents, and then they have their own family, and they become very nuclear. So you have these nuclear families where it's a mom, a dad, mm-hmm. and they're just their kids. And that's hard. That's very, very hard to raise your children without the support <clears throat> of the grandparents and the great-grandparents and the aunts and the uncles. It's it's extremely stressful on families. Yeah. Um, I don't know why we've lost we've lost something with the fragmentation that's been happening. I mean, my own family's fragmented, <clears throat> but I'm very much, you know, I'm very much involved in my sister's family. My sister had two children, mm-hmm. so. You know, many years ago when I was making the decision whether I was going to get married and have kids, you know, and then when I realized I wasn't, and um, my sister said something to me that was a little bit mean at the time. She says, you know, that's why you're put on this planet, to have children, you know, like I wasn't of any value. So, like the academic that I am, I went and did some anthropological research and looked at the role of the single female in the population traditionally. And there's a huge role for the single female. Mm-hmm. We play a huge role in the raising of families mm-hmm. and being of support. And, I mean, that is what I do professionally is I support families. Um, but I think families don't have enough support. Mm-hmm. Raising children, I think, is the hardest thing one can ever do. And... It's amazing that they turn out so well. <laughs> I find it amazing, but I see so many families that just don't have enough support. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I wonder why that is. I, I, you do see things kind of less orderly, like you, you see a lot of um, grandparents maybe raising their grandchildren, which is kind of. Um, you know, different than you, and then you also see um, a lot of moving around. So you're not, you know, close to to family and things like that. And um, yeah, so I don't know. I think we have put more of our culture has put, like in the 20th century, has put more um, emphasis on the nuclear family than 
most traditional ethnic cultures have probably. It's probably more normal throughout the history of man for um, you know the different generations to be closer connected, living together. But I think um, I don't know for some reason in the United States we've just put more emphasis on just the mom and dad and the kids. I think maybe it was a part of the, um, I don't know, like um, maybe a little bit of um, the concern of, um, you know, concern for the family um, and and then uh, maybe a reactionary type of thing to put a lot of emphasis on just the, the nuclear family. I don't know. But... Um, Yes, it, I can see what you mean, though. It seems like having those multicultural, ge- multi-generational type of things um, can be really helpful. And Extremely helpful. Yeah. I see a lot of young parents just, they're struggling. I mean, it's in the news a lot, like the cost of daycare. So both parents need to work to generate enough income to support the family, but then the children have to go somewhere else to be cared for. Mm-hmm. And the cost of the the care is so high; they have to weigh the cost of the care of the kids versus you know staying home and caring for the kids. It's it's a struggle. It's nothing I've had to personally deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have a lot of appreciation for families and how hard it is to be parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder, um, you know, when it comes to like a community, a culture, you know, that wisdom is kind of passed down among the, you know, through the generations and things that work just kind of stick and things that don't get work get kind of just organically put aside and so forth. And you have this community wisdom that just kind of goes along and hopefully gets more wholesome and solid and things as things go along. But um, it seems like we've had um, different things that have um, maybe um, political changes, cult- you know, cultural revolutions and stuff that have maybe disrupted some of the organic generational type of things that would normally just kind of flow along and so forth. But I see a lot of fragmentation. I see a lot of single moms, which I don't even know how they do it, but they do amazing jobs raising their kids, and it's just so much work for them. Um, I don't know how we got so fragmented. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about what our, what we need? <laughs> oh. I mean... I'm, I'm probably the person who you would consider the most apolitical you could think of. Mm-hmm. My, si- my sister says I'm an independent. I, I don't know. Maybe that's what I am. But, you know, I look at where the money is in society, and I look at what society values. And our, our government system doesn't value children. It says they do, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at educators. People who educate children are extremely important to our world, and they are not paid what they're worth. Mm-hmm. You know, what I've learned in Missouri, in the state of Missouri, and I've taken care of these parents' children and talked to these parents who are teachers. Mm-hmm. Like, they have to buy their own supplies for the classroom. They have to decorate that classroom out of their own funds. The amount of money that they get paid is so minimal, I don't even understand why they're they're doing it. They could go work in a factory and get paid more. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I look at, you know, health, look at the healthcare system, which I'm in, so I'm a pediatrician. The lowest paid physician in this country is a pediatric hospitalist. It's a pediatrician who takes care of our sickest children. P- 
pediatricians are the lowest paid of all physicians. We're not considered specialists, hmm. which we kind of are, mm-hmm. but we're not considered specialists. And then you look at what happened during during COVID. So during COVID, we had a number of, if you were in a small hospital and you had a small pediatric unit, the hospital closed that pediatric unit and turned those beds into adult beds. Mm-hmm. And now that whatever COVID is, it's not over, but it's evolving, they haven't reopened those pediatric units. So we have these huge deserts, we call them care deserts for children in this country, and they're showing that the morbidity and mortality for these children in these parts of the country is getting way worse. There's there's no incentive for hospitals, there's no government incentives for hospitals to even have um, care of pediatric children within them. Um, it th- seems like we're losing our incentives to even have birthing units. If you if you read the New York Times, I think yesterday had an article about the number of um, rural hospitals that are um, closing their small birthing units because there's no money in it. You, you, it's a money losing proposition for any hospital to have a birthing unit. Mm-hmm. And so, um, because you need a number of staff there to support that unit, if you're only doing, you know, four to 600 births a year, you're just not bringing enough money to even pay the costs of having that unit open. And because there's no government subsidies to encourage that hospital to keep that birthing unit open, they just close them. And so now we're getting these um, care deserts around the United States in these rural areas for, for having babies, which is going to increase the morbidity and mortality for, for pregnant women. Mm-hmm. So my opinions, I guess, are a little bit strong here, whereas I just don't feel like our government supports the care of children. And if you look at who has the money in the country, it certainly isn't young families with children. They don't have any money to donate. They don't have any money to give, Right. Once you're older and you're retired and you've amassed all your income and now you can donate your money and to these hospitals and these units, right? Mm-hmm. Money goes to cancer to keep old old people alive, right? So I don't know. I just I don't understand why there's no government incentives for the healthcare system to provide adequate adequate care to children. I mean, look what happened just just this winter. We had what we called a triple demic for children. We had RSV, COVID, and influenza. I had the joy of working through that. We were in a state of an emergency as far as the people caring for children in the United States. We were literally in a state of an emergency. We were turning closets in hospitals. Closets were being turned into rooms for children to be cared for. And our government refused to declare a state of emergency and give us some support. There was just nothing. Mm -hmm. And so where are the priorities for this country? It's not with the children. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you look at insurers, you look at the insurance companies and what they reimburse, right? What they pay. So I can go, so a patient, you know, family can bring their kid to the ER. They could be seen. They could be treated, misdiagnosed, right? They can get the whole thing done. And that ER doctor gets 150 bucks. I can go to the ER, see the kid, diagnose them correctly, give them adequate treatment, prevent readmission, and I get 30 bucks. I don't even get even the same money from the insurer for dealing with the same problem with the same kid. It's just... What do you think about our healthcare system I guess we're kind of like a mix of like government involvement with um, Meta Medicaid, I guess, or Medicare, or one of them or the other. You know, we're we're like a mix of that, and then private, and all of that, and then some countries are like strictly private. Like I think that's how Mexico might be, where you just kind of go in and pay for your services and stuff, and then some are just really the government just kind of runs everything. And um, we're kind of like a confusing mix and so forth. <laughs> Do you have any um, thoughts about, um, you know, about, you know, just the that and what, um, 
what seems to be the best ideals for that and so forth? I don't know that our system is working. Okay, yeah. I don't perceive that it's working very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the fact that we now have Obamacare. I think that has been a massive change for the country. And I've seen people be able to get insurance. Mm-hmm. Because even, okay, even I have Obamacare because I'm a private contractor, right? So I don't have insurance through a company. Now, do I get any, uh, I, I pay full price for it. I go to the marketplace, I shop, I look at all the different you know, policies that are available, and I pick the one that I want, and I purchase it. Now, I pay full price. Um, but others I know who are, do not make much money and are you know, private contractors, they're able to go in, purchase whatever health insurance they're interested in, and then they get subsidized by the government you know, if they don't have much of an income. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe my niece, who's a college student, is even, you know, getting health insurance that way. Um, so I love it that you have this opportunity to actually be able to get insurance now. I mean, prior to, prior to this, you know, I was, a, I, I was independently employed for a number of years as a young physician, and I'll... I had no insurance for like nine, ten years. I just didn't have any health insurance. Now I was young and dumb and healthy and nothing bad happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I lived for ten years with no insurance. There was no system. When I went in to look and you know, purchase insurance, it was so exorbitantly expensive to be able to purchase your own policy that I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to pay cash for my health care. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the fact that we've made some changes and that you can, I mean, the, the policy that you buy is private, mm-hmm. but it's on this platform that makes it so much easier to get health insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think our health system and the way healthcare is paid for is working very well. Mm-hmm. I don't understand a lot of things. Uh, I don't understand why, you know, pharmaceuticals and insurance are, you know, they make more money than any business in the world, you know, so they're making money off of us, mm-hmm. off of our health or lack of health. I don't call it a healthcare system. I kind of call it a sick care system because the only thing they pay for is for you to be, if you're sick. So you would think being the country that we are, we would have the healthiest people in the world, but we really don't. Yeah. We're not ranked very high. So, you know, infant mortality, infant morbidity, we're pretty low. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's been shown. I mean, the studies are really clear. You know, we don't offer free health care, free, you know, wellness health care to young women in their birthing years, you know, their fertile years. We don't offer them free health care, keep them healthy before they're pregnant. Um, other countries do. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a great system. Yeah. So why did you choose be a pediatrician I think I was really a reluctant a reluctant physician I I was always interested in science Mm -hmm. and um, you know you go undergraduate I was very much a scientist I was in school with all these pre-med students I didn't like the pre-med students Um, and my intention was always to be a scientist I was very much a purist and saw things as black and white. And then I fell in love with medical research. And so that meant, you know, becoming an MD and a PhD. So I applied for uh, medical scientist training programs all over the country, which is a, a fund, that's a funded government program. And I was able to get into University of California, Los Angeles, where I did an MD and a PhD and I became fairly disillusioned with uh, science. Um, during the time that I was doing my research, I was studying um, genetic determinants of heart disease. So I became an expert in lipid metabolism and 
and genetics. And um, during that time, Atkins came out with his study on diet and being able to reverse atherosclerosis. I mean, it was groundbreaking work that he did, self-funded, amazing work. And I was excited. I'm like, look, you can reverse atherosclerosis with diet. The research world was not even interested. And I was in that world. They weren't even interested. They were all looking for, you know, things that caused atherosclerosis that you could develop a drug for. And you would think that, it's like, look, we found... We found the cure for atherosclerosis. He found the cure for atherosclerosis. They didn't even care. So is this Atkins? Is it like connected to the Atkins diet and stuff? No, it's the Atkins diet. Okay. Which is um, like basically like high protein, low carb type of things. Okay. But he was actually able to show that you could reverse atherosclerosis, which was profound information. The diet was so important. You know, Hmm. I mean... The whole way in which science is funded and the type of science that gets funded is even flawed. You know, we have this, what you call a reductionist model. So the science that you do, you have to look at, well, you change this one variable and you look at the effect of this one variable. So you can't look at the effect of echinacea plant. No, you have to break the echinacea plant down into its you know, individual components, and you can study the individual components of the echinacea plant, which makes no sense, right? So the, the fact that our, our NIH funding is such a reductionist model, it literally prevents you know, hmm. groundbreaking research to be funded, unless you get it funded privately. Mm-hmm. Um, I became very disillusioned with science. Science was all about money, power, ego, politics. It, you know, it was just, and it, I was kind of a purist. And so I ended up falling in love with medicine. Mm-hmm. And, and the truth is, is pediatrics was one of the last rotations I took because I knew I was going to hate it. I just knew it. And when I did my pediatrics rotation, I was, fell in love with working with the kids. I preferred the kids much more to the parents and to adults. I didn't like working with adults at all. Mm-hmm. Adults did all kinds of things to make themselves unhealthy, and then we were supposed to fix it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, why? Why would I want it? Children were just, they weren't smoking, at least the young ones. They weren't smoking and drinking and eating poor diets, and children were just, I don't know, seemed a little bit more innocent. Mm -hmm. So I ended up falling in love with pediatrics, which just surprised me. I didn't anticipate it at all. Um, One thing I was wanting to ask was, um, so what, and you can, um, if you get tired of being like just plied with questions, it's okay for you to, turn anything back or 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 whatever you you know but um i was wanting to ask about just your approach to um you know your own um physical and mental well-being and so forth like um um so I guess, um, like practices and think you know, your philosophy to, you know, being just well, you know, taking care of yourself and things like that when it comes to, um, your own, um, medical care and, and just your life of, um, you know, not just, um, you know, t- taking care of yourself, you know, going to doctor when you're sick, but, um, just kind of more of a, whole life type of approach to physical and mental well-being and stuff like that. I don't know. Do you have any kind of philosophy to how you approach that and um, practices that have been helpful to you and, you know, anything along those lines? I mean, I think for many years I was a typical physician in that I didn't care for myself. Uh, Yeah. We didn't practice what we preach. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, because we talk about diet and exercise and all that. Um, 
I think early on, I think mental health was probably the biggest challenge because when I went through my training, um, especially with residency, there weren't the restrictions on the number of hours that one worked. Mm-hmm. And that was extremely challenging for one's mental health. Um, so I would say probably more than half of us were on antidepressants in medical school and residency. I mean, there's a number of most of us are taking something mm-hmm. um, because in my generation, so I'm in my 50s, so in my generation of physicians and the physicians before me, workaholism was expected. And um, and with workaholism comes, you know, not caring for oneself as much because you're working all the time and you're exhausted. Mm-hmm. So um, I had to take a very active approach for a number of years in learning what mental health was because I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. So I created a program, and it's interesting, because in the beginning I thought what what triggered my, I don't know, I became a seeker of looking for you know, what creates mental health. But the trigger was, when I was a young doctor, I was taking care of a young man, it was, he was, I don't know, five or six years old, oh, maybe, maybe, or maybe he was three or four years old, this was in Hawaii. And this young man was being kicked out of every single daycare preschool he was in he was he was biting and hurting other kids and he was a massive behavior problem and and the parents were challenged and I didn't know you know I just referred him to where you refer them to you see you refer them to child psychiatry to have them help figure it out right help us figure out how to help this kid be in society and not hurt other children and they medicated him. They gave him medications, and then the parents came back to me. It was very heartbreaking. I think they had put him on. I think they put him on risperidone, and they said the light had gone from their child's eyes. Huh. And I started me on a path of, you know, well, what creates mental health? Like, how does one create mental wellness? You know, how does that begin? How does it develop? So I spent many years and created my own um, integrative sort of integrative medicine training program. And I traveled and worked. And then in between when I wasn't working, I studied. I studied with um, a man uh, by the name of Ray Castellino, who was probably one of the early founders of infant mental health. Studied with him for many years and studied cranial psychotherapy, polarity therapy. I looked I looked at all kinds of different ways of like how one creates mental health. And in the middle of it, in the middle of the training, what's happening is you're learning about your own mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the by, byproduct of seeking for what creates mental health helped me create mental health for myself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in our country, you know, mental health is such a, I don't know. It's not like having diabetes. How do you define mental health? You know, I mean, for me, it's it's being able to live in the world and um, interact with people and have a very full and rich life, not restricted by fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are restricted by fears, fears mm-hmm. and anxiety. Um, you know, I think the mental health system looks at, you know, are you able to do your activities of daily life? You know, are you are you able to maintain a relationship with somebody? Are you able to they look at all of those right. those things. But it's like ability to actually enjoy life and have happiness. Right. So there's this particular viewpoint of this is what a human, you know, a healthy, satisfying human life is, and like uh, mental dishealth would be anything that keeps you from that, I guess. And I've had a number of mental health challenges during my life because, you know, my, my most recent one was here I thought after all these years that I was so mentally healthy and I got caught up in the workaholism Mm -hmm. you get caught up in that and it's just a spiral so my last job job where I was employed 
um, I told them when I did the job, I was building up a new program for them and it was going to be very labor intensive. And I told them, I said, look, I can only work this hard for a year. Then I'm going to need to back off a bit. Uh I can't work this much. And they pretty much refused to let me renegotiate. And I got very burned out. And and people are like, oh, what's burnout? You're just tired a little bit. Burnout is when you no longer want to be alive. Uh You're not suicidal. But you won't, don't want to be alive. You have no joy. I had no compassion for my patients anymore because uh-huh. I had like nothing left in my soul to give. Uh-huh. And I was caring for my mother who had dementia also. So, you know, it's not like I wasn't like overextended in my personal life also. But um, you know, when you get burned out, you also don't take care of your physical health. Uh-huh. And so I have, I was never good at going to the doctor. Like, you know, I have quotation marks going up, going to the doctor and getting my yearly physical. I was never really good at that until I got to be a bit older and things started like wearing out. <laughs> so I'm a little better at it now. And for my physical health, I know that the healthcare system that we have right now is not going to take care of me. Uh-huh. Period. They're not going to take care of me. Yes, if I need surgery. Yes, if I'm dying. Yes, right. if this. To save your life, but not but to care for you. But they don't actually take care of my physical health. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a regular doctor who I see, and I, I like her. I just had to find a new one because all my doctors have retired recently. This whole COVID thing, everybody quit. And if they're near retirement, they all like just went into retirement. So I have a new doctor who's very nice and and. She tolerates me because I also have another doctor. My other doctor is a functional medicine doctor, and they're doctors, but they also do integrative and alternative medicine. They do tests that aren't, they're different than what traditional doctors do, and they actually maintain my health. Hmm. So I yeah. pay cash. Mm-hmm. I pay cash for my health care. I have insurance for my sick care. Because your insurance won't cover. Your health care, the functional type of doctors. No, 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 no. They don't pay for that. Right. No, and, and, and health care doesn't do the wellness, the quality of wellness care that I want for myself. Mm-hmm. Western medicine doesn't even do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm very, very proactive because now I'm in my 50s. And I'm looking at my bone health. I'm looking at my heart health. I'm looking at my gut health, mm-hmm. you know, um, and... It takes, it honestly takes quite a bit of work. Yeah. For someone who isn't going to, you know, pay for a functional type of doctor, um, what could move them, you know, give them a little more understanding about how to care for their health? Um, I mean, like, there's all kinds of advice on the internet, but it's such a, a big mix, a lot to sort out and figure out and everything. Um, it's so much. I mean, I've struggled with it for years. And I, even going to these functional medicine doctors, I don't feel like I even figured out my own health until the last year um, and what was going on with me because I was gaining a lot of weight and I finally figured it out. Um, Some people do like the... Um you know, you spit in the tube and then you go see like what kind of genes you have and that might give you a predisposition toward this or that and so that you can kind of head it off. Is that kind of a part of like that functional wellness type of... That can be like one of the things. I think what I'm learning or what I've learned and, you know, it's not like they don't teach this in functional health and I think Western medicine is getting there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is kind of the 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 decade of the gut for Western medicine. Functional medicine has been there for like 50 years. Mm -hmm. It's all about your gut, all about your gut, all about your gut, all about your gut. Mm -hmm. Um, Because your immune system, you know, if someone someone asked me one time, well, where does your immune system live? I was like, I don't know. It lives all along your gut. Your entire gut is lined with these lymph nodes, these little pyres, patches, and lymph nodes. So your immune system is literally next to your gut. And so your gut health determines your immune health, and your immune health is pretty much your whole health, right? So, um, I mean, if I told anybody out there, it's like, yeah, your gut health is it. And so, 
yeah, you can get an overgrowth of bacteria, you can get an overgrowth of yeast, you can, uh, you know, you can have it so that you're, you're literally not absorbing, you know, your nutrients, you're not getting your nutrients out of your food. I don't know how to do that on your own, but it does include, you know, you're, ta- you're eating a, you know, a whole foods diet. I know that you're, you're taking your, uh, your probiotics. Mm-hmm. Probiotics is the vitamin for your gut. So you're doing your prebiotics, your probiotics, um, you know, definitely removing the mercury from your mouth because the mercury does slowly go into your gut and it messes everything up. Mercury in your mouth? Like mercury in your fillings. In your fillings? Mm-hmm. Okay. You get all your mercury fillings removed because it, it causes gut dysbiosis. Hmm. So, um, but it's, you know, seeing a functional medicine doctor really isn't that expensive. It, okay. If you're looking at your health. Right. If you're looking important. at if you're looking at your longevity mm-hmm. and you're looking at, you know, how you choose to age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but some people are very naturally healthy, yeah. And some of us aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's taken a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work for me to figure it out. And I think with women, I think it's harder because you have that whole perimenopausal, postmenopausal thing going on, and Western medicine just doesn't know jack about that. <laughs> they just don't. They don't get it. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I think women need a lot of support going through that process because it definitely messed up how your mind works, how you sleep, when your sleep is so important to your health. Um, so you need to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so I've had to put a lot of work into my health. But see, I don't have a family. I don't have kids. I can put my time and energy into that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, my sister's married with kids. She puts a lot of energy into it, too. But she puts their energy into it almost for her family, keeping her family healthy. You know, the women are the ones in the family who usually push the health of the family. Um, you know, and, and she pays cash for it, and they don't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. and they're, self, you know, they're all self-employed. Um, so I think it's just priorities. Right. Yeah. Like it, I recently, I, I got to the point where I was struggling with my health and I was like, look, I got to figure this out. And I love my dog. My dog is my daughter. She is. And we had a $10,000 year last year, right? She mm. was expensive last year. Wow. <laughs> there was a test that I decided I wanted to do on myself. And I looked at the cost, and it was $425. It was a nutritional, full nutritional analysis to figure out what is going on that I don't seem to be able to... I'm not absorbing my vitamins. What is going on? So I had some, like, whoa, that's $425. And then I'm like, wait a minute. You just spent ten grand on your dog. What are you thinking? And because of that test finally figured out I figured out what was going on hmm. but I was really resistant to spending $425 on myself yeah yeah Jordan Peterson mentions that we take better care of our pets than ourselves have you are you familiar with Jordan Peterson no oh, but okay. that totally makes sense <laughs> because I had another dog who passed away from lymphoma and I remember doing everything for him. I remember standing in my kitchen, looking at the countertop and he had all his, all his nutritional supplements and all his stuff. And I realized, I realized I was taking better care of my dog than I was of my mother. (laughs) And I had this epiphany. It's like, Oh, Oh, I have to do this with my mom. (laughs) And that's when I, shifted gears with caring for my mother and got very involved in all her doctor's appointments and figuring out, and we figured out what was going on with her. It was because of my dog. And I realized I was putting more energy into my dog than caring for my mother. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't live with that. I thought yeah. that there was a, that was incongruent in my own belief systems. It's like, I can't take better care of my dog than I can of my mother. Well, it goes the same way as I have to take as good a care of myself as I do my dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't even think about what I spend on her. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so just kind of in in wrapping up, 
Um, just a last uh, question to ask you about if you have any thoughts about this. Like, so for you, um, like what, I- what are you aiming at in life? Like, is there um, like some, you know, for you, what is, I guess this is related to the question, what's life all about for you? What are you wanting to, to gain? Or if there is anything, if you've kind of thought through that or, you know, and just are yearning, f- what are you yearning for or something along those lines? Just... You know, it's hard, it's hard for me to understand what motivates me in life. And there was one philosopher who I studied it with at one time who I really liked the metaphor of, you know, of trying to be the glove on the hand of God. And what that meant to me was to be of service and to, and that's what I am. My life is pretty much service and to go where I'm called and to provide service in that place. And it might be with that, that family, with that child, with that person I meet in the community. I always, you know, feel like I want to feel like I am being of service Mm-hmm. to whatever higher power we have out there. And I've tried not working. <laughs> I, I do okay for about a month and a half. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't do well with not not having meaning in my life. Yeah. I don't know how to... I do, yeah. I feel like I still have service in me. Mm-hmm. I still have work in me. Um you know, how do I go? Where do I work? You know, at this point, you know, where do I take a job and what makes me decide? And, and honestly, I'll be quite honest right now. I just want to like make as much money as I can and retire because money was never important to me. And so now I need to make up for it. Um, but everywhere I go, I know I'm of service and I'm definitely a catalyst for change. Most places I go. Um, that can be very challenging when you're a catalyst for change because people don't like change. Um, So yeah, right now it's being of service, traveling, working, spending time with my partner on the boat. I'm really looking, I haven't done enough of that in the past year, so I'm really looking forward to it. This summer I'm going to be on the boat for a couple months and I really, really am going to enjoy that. And I forget what all the other questions were. No, I think that kind of, yeah, they were just all general trying to get to the same point, but I think that you answered it pretty well. Yeah. I enjoy what I, I enjoy. I enjoy my life. It's a little bit on the lonely side because I'm traveling and working, and so you're not connected with people mm-hmm. as much. Um, but in my downtime, I'm with people. Mm-hmm. I'm with a lot of people in my downtime. Well, thank you, Cynthia. I appreciate the conversation. Mm -hmm.